Colossians chapter 4. Today we come to the, the end of our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And over the past uh, few months we have seen Paul defend the exclusivity of Christ. Not only as a way of salvation, but as a Savior who needs nothing added to him. So Christ is not just one who blazes a path in which we are to follow, receiving whatever help uh, that we can muster up from ourselves or gather from other places. No, he is the Savior who goes before us and who also comes with us to God, sustaining our relationship with him. Christ is the supreme and sufficient Savior of our souls, not only ours, but for all who would look to him in faith dying to themselves, relying on him alone to make them right with God. So he will be their savior as well. And Paul has shown that there are practical implications of this faith. If we truly believe that Christ is our savior, if we truly follow him as Lord, there are differences that should be seen in our life than those in the lives of those around us. There are uh, implications for how we think and live and love. And Paul has sought to make that clear in this letter. And I know... From the outset, it's hard to believe, but these remaining verses, if you have at all looked over them ahead of time, uh, they are the ones that are sometimes left on uh, the cutting room floor of our Bible reading plans. We just think, what's the point? Uh, But here, you will actually find some of the most significant verses in the book. And this morning, I want to show you how Colossians ends on a bang, not a whimper. So follow along with me, beginning as I read at verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who was one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. Again, it may seem unlikely at first, but when it comes to understanding how we are to go about making disciples of Jesus Christ, these closing verses are gold to us. Because they don't just set forth a theology of disciple making. They don't just say, here's all the reasons why you should do it. That's helpful. We need that to be encouraged and to have our our direction set. But here we have a picture, a practical example of how we are to go about doing this. Notice the key verse in verse uh, 11, key phrase rather in verse 11, Paul talks about my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Immediately, there are implications to that verse. To begin with, we see that Paul doesn't do ministry alone. 
though not everyone can be at the center or the forefront of ministry, everyone can be a part of disciple-making ministry. Paul was the one in this case at the center of things. He was an apostle. He had a unique calling. But what did he do? He gathered around himself a band of brothers. He put together a ministry cohort, a gospel posse, if you will. A group of men that he taught and trained, this is what it means to make disciples. Come, travel with me, see it done, and then he would spin them off into oftentimes their own ministries. Sometimes he would go back through a church church, uh, and see uh, they they still have need. I'm going to leave this guy here and he's going to strengthen this church like he did with Timothy. Sometimes he goes in church planting, uh, people are saved, and he immediately identifies, I'm going to leave this person here and they're going to pastor this church while I forge on ahead making the name of Christ known where it has not yet been known. These were, his, these were his fellow workers. They all had different gifts, different backgrounds. Some were Jews, others were Greeks. Some were common laborers, and one was a doctor. But all of them were working together for the sake of the kingdom of God. All of them were working together for gospel growth. And it's this picture of apostolic ministry that serves as an example for us today. It's an example that can correct so many mistaken ideas about what ministry is supposed to be about and what it is supposed to look like. It should help bring clarity to how pastors in the pulpit and people in the pew should think about their relationship to one another and their role in doing the ministries of a church. Now, we've talked about it before, and if you've read the elders' reports, even this morning, if you were in Sunday school, you know that this past year, uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Richard and I have all been praying and thinking and asking uh, how can we do what we do in a better way? How can we be more faithful? How can we be more biblical? How can we better let the New Testament set the pattern and design for how we seek to make disciples here at Crossway Church? And if you'll remember way back, I know it's pushing it, back to January of this year, you might remember a little four-week series called Grow where we actually laid down some tracks to show the direction in which things would be heading. And I have to say, I'm excited that uh, this coming January, just a few weeks away, uh, the fruit of all that thinking and praying and talking and, uh, you know, pounding each other out. No, we didn't do any of that. But uh, all of our interaction with one another, it it will be made known to you and presented to you, and I hope that, uh, that you will find it beneficial and helpful and even biblical. Nevertheless, this morning, you're going to get a taste of this mindset because here, as with much of the book of Colossians, Colossians is essentially a manual for church life seeking gospel growth. There's so much that we've already seen that we're going to be refreshing our minds about in the coming weeks. And nevertheless, here we get a hint of where we are going. Paul, the master disciple maker who learned from the master, has given us an example to follow. And what he has shown is this, we must have a mindset that sees the church and sees ministry not just as a place where a few people do all the work. The ministers of the gospel are doing the ministry. No, the Bible says all of us are ministers of the gospel. All of us are to be engaged in ministry. And so the church does not become uh, a central location for a few people to do everything. Rather, it becomes a training ground for sending out gospel footmen, all equipped to share in the privilege of making disciples, whether it's with a person next door, in the next country, or around the world. So that's what we want to see in the next few minutes, maybe next several minutes, uh, from these verses here at the close of Paul's letter to the Colossians. From these snapshots of Paul's ministry team, we will gain a better understanding of what it means to work together 
to grow the gospel both in us and in the world. And what we see is us working together in three ways. First, we work together in fellowship. We work together in fellowship. Now, we've said before, in terms of the New Testament thinking, fellowship is more than about meals and hanging out. There's nothing wrong with having meals and hanging out. There's nothing wrong with getting together and just, uh, just being with one another, spending time together. But biblically defined, the word fellowship means more than that. It is about partnership for a common cause. And, and we explained not, not long ago, just a, a few months ago, how the original word picture was as a business deal. It was two people, perhaps one person who had uh, the capital and another person who had the manpower, and they would come together, partner together for some business venture. And that's, the, that's the, the sense of this word fellowship. It is about partnering together with common, a common vision, common goals, common beliefs for a common cause. And what we see here is that it is this fellowship, this common faith in Christ that becomes the basis for their work together. And so we see this fellowship um, uh, being expressed in two ways. First of all, we see that they fellowship as God's people. They fellowship as God's people. In verse 7, Paul calls uh, Tychicus a beloved brother. In verse 9, Onesimus is called the same. And I think the explicit statement made about these two men should be extended to everyone in the passage. Why? Well, because I think when Paul talks about them being beloved and being brothers, I think at one level, which we'll talk about in a minute, he means it as it is an endearing term of affection. This is my beloved brother. And so there, there are some people that... Uh, that I have known in my life. There are some of you uh, that I am friends with. I'm even good friends with. But then there are those that I would say, this is my beloved brother. I have known them for years. They have been with me through thick and thin. They have been with me in the highs and the lows. They know everything there is to know about me. But I think more broadly, Paul was identifying them simply as this. They are Christian believers. When you read the New Testament, you will see over and over and over again, those on the inside, those who are part of the church, are always identified as brothers and sisters in Christ. More than that, they are identified as those who are loved, specifically loved by God. And so you will see the Apostle John very often writing to his church, not saying brothers and sisters, but saying loved ones, loved ones, beloved, do this and remember this. Paul is helping us to understand that because they are Christians, they have come together with a central defining purpose. It is this fruit of their common faith in Christ that has brought them together for shared ministry. Likewise today, as we think about those sitting next to us in these chairs, those that are with us in this church, what is the one thing that defines us? Well, it's not our favorite sports teams. Uh, I know. A couple weeks ago, I see on Facebook, flaming darts colored green and white and those with colored blue and maize coming back. You know, it's, it, it's not sports that unite us together. It is not the kind of jobs that we have. We have white collar. We have blue collar. We have no collar uh, all in this church. Uh, that's, that's, not what, that's not what brings us together. What brings us together here is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him we are loved by God. In Him we are brothers and sisters. And therefore that becomes the defining relationship that brings us together in order to serve God. And one of the things that we see uh, is that because we have this connection, we are meant to be organically connected. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes the body of Christ as a physical body. And he says when one part hurts, it affects the whole body. And so uh, can you imagine working at a factory and perhaps uh, crushing your hand in some machine? Can you perhaps imagine uh, washing dishes and accidentally mangling your fingers in the garbage disposal? Can you imagine doing this and, and withdrawing your hand, examining the damage that was there, and saying, you know what, I just don't have time to go to the hospital and get this looked at. I just don't have time to go to the doctor. I've got lots of work i got to get done today. Uh, you know what? I, w- I would much rather do something else with my money than pay on the ER visit. And so you just kind of, you know, tuck it up under your armpit and go about your day. I mean, no, nobody's going to do that unless I'm just completely crazy. You're going to go, ah, and you're going like, to call 911 and, or punch your husband in the arm and say, take me to the hospital. You're going to have it treated. Uh, likewise, extend the analogy that Paul does when we see when we see one another in pain in some way or in need, we should not turn a blind eye. We should not just say, "Well, I don't have time for that. I got other stuff I got to do. I don't want to spend my money on that." No, Paul. Paul gives the example: we are one body. When 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 one when one part of us, any one of us, feels pain, it should affect all of us. It should ripple through the body, bringing us together. And, and, and so, again, the whole point that I'm trying to get at here is because we have faith in Christ, we are now spiritually connected to one another in a way that we are not connected with anybody else in the world. The way that you look at one another should be different than the way you look at and treat and think about and love your closest of friends who are not Christians. That, that's the example that, that Paul gives to us and the explicit teaching that he gives. But here's the other thing that we, that we see, and that is it is not just a concern for one another that comes from our, our fellowship that we have in Christ. We also see that it drives us together for the sake of ministry. So the second thing that we see is this. We have fellowship for the gospel. We have fellowship for the gospel. Paul says that all of these people are his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a fellow worker for the kingdom of God? Well, here's the, here's the reality. We need to know what the kingdom of God is in order to first know that. I think Jesus is perhaps best qualified to tell us. And what we see in the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, we read that after Jesus was baptized, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there we see that the coming of the kingdom of God is intimately tied to the preaching of the gospel. In fact, it is part of the gospel. The kingdom of God is not not some political strategy. it's It's not a physical kingship where he stands on a throne and reigns with subjects. No, it is his saving reign. It is the spiritual dynamics of salvation in Christ over his people. All people who would turn to him in faith are part then of the kingdom of God. They have turned from their sin and their rebellion to identify their true king, even Christ, their savior. And it is good that it is good news that the proclamation of this kingdom has come because this king does not deal severely with sinners who repent. For those who would identify their sin, the rebellion against Christ, those who would repent and throw themselves at the mercy of God, he will receive them. He will forgive them because Christ has died and raised back to life in their place. This is what makes the, you know, if you, if you just said, Christ is Lord. Okay, who's Christ? I mean, he was a good guy. He came, he healed some people, and then he got killed. 
This is not starting off well. We killed Christ, and now he's back to life, and he's Lord. I don't think I like this. What is he going to do to me in return? If I'm sinning against him, what is his response going to me? If he has authority over all things, what does that mean for my life? There seems to be no hope. There is hope because he was killed willingly for you. And when you acknowledge that and turn away from your sin and say, I want you to be the true king. I want to trust in you to make me right with God. He shows mercy to you. This is what makes it good news. We don't get what we deserve from the all-sovereign reigning king. He takes the worst of humanity and redeems them to be his own sons. And Paul says he does this, therefore, together with a group of people. That is, Paul himself. He seeks to see the saving reign, this kingdom extended, not just in what he's doing, but as he pulls together this team of people, they are all working together in fellowship, in harmony, for this cause of seeing Christ proclaimed so that more people will be brought into his kingdom and into their fellowship. And so their common faith in Christ, their fellowship in him, determines how they love and interact with one another, and it also then affects how they are to serve and to minister with one another as they go out into the world. If we are going to be about the business of growing the gospel, advancing the kingdom, even as Paul says that we should, as Jesus himself said that we should in Matthew 28, then it has to be rooted in us being together in fellowship. We must come to grips with the common faith we have in Christ and allow that to affect our thinking and our feeling towards one another, both in how we relate and in how we minister together. And this takes us to our next point, and that is this. If we are to be working together, partnering together for gospel growth, then we will be together in ministry. We will be together in ministry. As Paul is sending greetings back and forth, describing his situation in this passage, he also describes what this ministry of the kingdom looks like. And so as we think through this, we want to be thinking about a pattern for ourselves. First, we see that we are to minister by encouraging. We are to minister by encouraging. Here we return to Tychicus. Paul says, he will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul says he has sent Tychicus along with him, Onesimus, to encourage the hearts of the Colossians. Now, what is this encouragement that he is giving them? Well, part of the work of gospel ministry, part of the work that all of us are called to be a part of, is seeking to encourage one another. That word encourage means you are building up, you are strengthening the other person. It is a, it is a proactive word that often involves teaching. It often involves sharing uh, the, the gospel or the word of God with someone, with someone else. More than likely, this encouragement came on a very practical level. He says, he says, he will come and tell you all that has happened with us, all that is going on here. You put yourself in the, in the, in the minds of the Colossians, you remember that indirectly the Colossians came to faith because of Paul. He, he witnessed to uh, uh, Epaphras, who then took the gospel back to Colossae and began witnessing that a church was formed. And so he would have told them of the apostle Paul. Now the Colossians have heard Paul is in prison for the faith. He is chained up. He's under lock and key. He's being kept by the Romans. What is going on with him? And, and is it coming to us? 
And, and as uh, Epaphras observes, we, we, we've seen in earlier chapters, false teaching that is seeking to come and, and molest the Colossian Christians. Epaphras uh, travels uh, hundreds of miles to go track down Paul in prison to get his advice. And he says, yeah, they know you're in prison. And Paul thinks, oh, man, they're going to be worried about me. Now, now, that right there says something about Paul, doesn't it? Not, yeah, they should be worried about me. I'm the great apostle. I'm in prison. No, he's thinking, oh, man, the Colossians, are you worried about me? Oh, we've got to talk to them. We've got to send somebody and assure them and encourage them. Everything's okay here. And encourage their hearts in what may be coming towards them. And so he sends Tychicus to strengthen them in their faith, to, to renew their calling to faithfulness and perseverance. And, and again, that's the kind of ministry that we are to be having with one another. We are to be taking the word of God and to be encouraging one another, building one another up. As Hebrews says, we are to be stirring up one another to love and to good works. That's part of what this gospel ministry is about. It's how we grow the kingdom of God through the gospel. It's by encouraging one another. But more than that, we also see that we are to minister by comforting. We are to minister by comforting. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, who was Aristarchus? Well, he was a Thessalonian who traveled with Paul on several occasions. You can read about those travels in Acts chapters 19 and 20. And as Paul explains, he is a fellow prisoner. He is incarcerated along with the Apostle Paul, more than likely for the same offense. You say, what offense is that? It was, is that? Well, I think it's the same offense that he just asked the Colossians to pray that he would keep up in, uh, in verse 3 of this chapter, fearlessly proclaiming the mystery of Christ to the gospel of God. And so, so here you have a guy who is, who is engaged in the same kind of activity that Paul is and therefore finds himself in prison along with him. Then you, if you've read the Gospels and Acts, you will know about Mark. You will remember who he is. He was actually with Jesus when he was arrested in the garden, and he fled along with the rest of the disciples. Then later, he was with Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey, and he fled from them as well. He deserted the team and headed home. For whatever reason, he felt like he couldn't take it. And then he wanted to try again, and Paul, you know what he said? He said, ain't no way. Forget that. Are you kidding me? You already bailed on us the first time. I'm not, you're dead weight. I'm not dragging you along. I mean, this is not stuff where you just go home and cry to mama. You know, this is, out, this is frontier work for the gospel. It's going to be suffering and difficult. You're not going with me. And actually, it was a cause of, 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 uh, of division between Paul and Barnabas. Because as we read right here, Mark was his cousin. He wants to give him a second chance. He, he loves him. He wants to take care of him. And so Paul says, fine, you take him and you go this way, and I'm going to go with my group, and I'm going to go this way. And now, and now what do we see that's happened here? He's part of the team again. In fact, years later, Timothy receives Paul's final letter. He knows he's back in prison again and he's about to be killed. And he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So here's a guy who starts out as a ministry leader. Can't keep up. Doesn't, doesn't keep the course. Keeps bailing. And God matures him. God changes his heart. It turns him from being someone who would flee and bail to someone who is now a vital part of the team. Loved ones, that is an encouragement to me, and it should be an encouragement to you. Because there are going to be times we fail in our calling. 
whether it's just in witnessing and having a life that, that looks good before other people so they will reflect the glory of Christ, or whether we're given an assignment and we drop the ball. And you know what? The example of Mark here is this. It says, that's okay. God forgives, and more than that, he transforms. He can take people who, do, who, don't, who don't cut the mustard initially, and he can make them people who even the Apostle Paul can say, make sure you bring him because he is useful to me. In this case, he is a comfort to me. There's Mark. There's also Jesus who is called Justice. Now, you have to understand Jesus was a very common enough name among the Jews. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or as we have in English, Joshua. And, of course, Joshua was a great uh, man of faith in the Old Testament, and so he became a man that many of the fathers named their sons after, even a couple fathers in this own congregation. For Paul, you know, basically when you name your kid Joshua, it's, it's naming him Jesus, but without the pressure. That's what it comes down to. So, so for Paul, these two guys, Justice and Mark, they are important because notice what he says. Among all the Jews who have rejected Paul because they rejected Christ, he's got two guys that are now with him through thick and thin. Two guys that, that don't look down on him for seeing Christ as the Messiah. Two guys that serve right along with him. Two guys that, that are guys that he can depend on who are a comfort to him. I mean, think about that. This is the apostle who in, who in Romans, he says, he says I, I weep and I struggle in prayer. My heart longs and aches that my fellow countrymen, the Jews, would embrace their Messiah. And they haven't. And you can imagine, Paul has this calling not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Does that mean he doesn't witness the Jews? No, he does, but he knows. His primary calling is to establish the church. He's an apostle of the Gentiles. And you just know he's constantly looking over his shoulder. He's walking down the road to the synagogue and knowing they are blind. They think they know God and they don't. They're going to go to hell because they have refused to see their Messiah. More than that, his own people are persecuting him. They have rejected him. They don't want anything to do with him. And then here is Justice and Mark, two fellow Jews, his countrymen. And they have embraced Paul. They are supporting the work because they have embraced the Messiah. He says, they are a comfort to me. Now understand, in Paul saying that he is comforted, he's saying he's human. Although he is courageous, he is determined, he is willing to endure suffering for the circumstances in which he is in because of the sake of Christ, he is nevertheless a man. And he is susceptible to discouragement and depression and disillusionment just like the rest of us. He was a man in need of comfort and God provided it to him. When we think about the work of gospel ministry, sometimes it's encouraging people. It is spurring them on. It is speaking a word that, that convicts and yet motivates. And sometimes it's bringing comfort. Sometimes it is not bringing um, a kind of, come on, let's, let's keep moving kind of attitude, but more of a coming alongside, a sitting in the dirt, in the ashes, and weeping with those who weep. It is being a balm and an encouragement to ministry. A few months later this morning, I shared one example of a person who, was a great encouragement, a great comfort to me along the way. And the reality is, when, you, when, when, when Paul sees people like the, the people that are in his team, the reason why they bring a comfort to him is because one of the things, at least for a ministry leader, from my experience, that is most comforting is to see the people that you are with growing in their faith in Christ. 
It may not be in big ways. It may not be in fast ways. But when you see the constant forward movement of God's people that you are seeking to disciple and lead, it is a comfort to your soul because it means what you're doing is not meaningless. What you're doing is not a fool's errand. What you're doing is not just something you're on about and nobody else cares. God is in the work. And so when we think about our own lives then and we think about how can we be encouraging one another, sometimes it's, it, or, or, and comforting one another, sometimes it's, it's just a little what it sounds like. Someone has a rough day and you're at their side. You put an arm around them and you comfort them. Now sometimes, sometimes the encouragement and the comfort comes in just you being faithful to what you've been called to a constant faithfulness to Christ and the mission he has given us. Sometimes it's sharing a meal or meeting a physical need. Sometimes it's just listening. But what Paul shows is there's two other things, two very important, crucial things that must be a part of our efforts to comfort and encourage. This is the third and the fourth things in how we minister together. And the first one is this, we minister with the word. So 2.3 is minister with the word. Again, we see this from Tychicus. How? It involves the sending of this very letter, the letter to the Colossians. Tychicus was the very first person to see, to touch, to carry, deliver, and read the letter that you have bound in that book called a Bible in front of you. When, when Paul was, was verbally giving and the letter to the Colossians being transcribed, Tychicus was there. He heard it being composed on the spot and he was the one for which it was rolled up bound put in a leather satchel and entrusted to him to deliver to the colossians he was the one that would have arrived he would have met with the pastor and said i'm here with a letter for paul it is it is tychicus who would have then been led to the front of the gathering of the colossian church and unrolled that letter that he'd heard from the very lips of paul and read it and bore that message to the colossian people what a phenomenal And Paul says this is the primary means by which he is going to encourage the Colossians. It is by opening up God's word and proclaiming it to them. Notice at the end of the letter, verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, what is this letter from Laodicea? We don't know. Could be the letter to the Ephesians, but it's likely a letter we don't have. And that's okay. We shouldn't bother us too much because elsewhere the Bible tells us that what we have in these 66 books is all that we need for life and godliness. We don't, we're not missing out on anything. My point in what we should see here, though, is that God expects God's word to be moving among his people. He expects that the word that he gave to one church will also be shared with another church. The word he's given the Colossians will go on to somebody else. It is this continual movement of the word of God among his people that Paul sees as the primary means by which the people of God are encouraged and comforted and built up. Loved ones, I mean, for years, this has is, this is the, been the, 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 the stump speech of your pastor. And that is, be taking in the word, that you may know the word, that you may share the word, so that God's church will be comforted, encouraged, and sent out on mission that it might be great. Where did I get that? I just got it from from Paul. I just got it from Paul. That's essential to ministering 
together. The final thing that we see that is the handmaiden of ministering by the word is ministering by praying. Ministering by praying. Verses, in verses 12 and, and 13, Paul reminds us of a man we've seen earlier in the letter. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, most of us, I have to say, well, as I say not, so let's just not say most of us, let's just say me. If, if you had to characterize my prayer life, not saying it doesn't happen sometimes, but if you had to characterize my prayer life, unfortunately, I could not say with any integrity it was a struggle in the way that Paul means. I can say it's a struggle in, in terms of making the time and being focused and not letting your mind wander about anything and everything that's going on. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about an intense spiritual struggle of Epaphras before the throne of God for his fellow churchmen, the Colossians. He is not just a man who says, God, be with them. He is a man who knows their needs. He is a man who, like Jacob, wrestles with God in prayer that he might show up and be at work encouraging, ministering to, sanctifying those people. And, and, and Paul says he, he prays the same way. So apparently that's how he taught Epaphras to pray as well, even as he led him to Christ. We get a glimpse of Epaphras in uh, in, this, in this description of his prayer life. Again, he left the church to find Paul to get his help and seek his advice on how to handle this threat of false teaching. While he was away, he sees prayer as a means of ministering to his church back home. He sees prayer as a means of ministering for them, of serving them, of struggling on their behalf. When we pray for one another, this should be an example for us. Our prayers should be what we see here. All of life should be brought before God in prayer, that there's not one thing that happens that, that cannot be prayed about. But the consistent pattern that we see throughout the Bible is, that, is, is the prayer for spiritual concerns. My point is this, don't start with somebody's help. Start with your soul. Make that the focus of your praying. Now, if you're a, a prayer warrior and you want to come and disciple me in prayer, that, that, that's great because you're the kind of person that would take an hour, hour and a half, no problem. And it frankly doesn't matter where you start because you're going to get to pretty much everything. But most of us are shooting in at five minutes, ten minutes, maybe 15 minutes if we're lucky. And you know what's going to happen. We're going to start with somebody's car and somebody's big toenail who came off and a cold they've got, and then we're going to say, well, I'm out of time and I've got to go to work. And what we fail to reckon with is that over and over again, what Paul prayed for again and again in his letters, what he taught people like Epaphras to pray for, was to go after the soul first, to wrestle with God on their behalf. How are they with God? Are they close to him? Could they be closer? Pray for those things. That is how. That is how we can be encouraging and comforting to one another. We have seen that we are to be together in fellowship, together in ministry. The final thing that we see is that we are to be together, be together in faithfulness. Specifically, we begin by thinking about faithfully serving. Tychicus and Onesimus were both called faithful, and that is a great example today. I have to say, one of the most, one of the most disheartening things that, um, 
that has been my experience since uh, Facebook is to see people that I, I was in a high school youth group with, people that was, I was friends with in college who went to college Christian, and we get caught up after years of being apart, and they, they have failed. They have failed to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In, in fact, we have these positive examples, but did you notice that Paul mentions Demas here? It's interesting. I don't know why, but all he says is, Demas is with me, he sends his greetings. But the sad reality is, in Paul's last letter, at the, at the end of the apostolic age, he writes to Timothy and he says, Demas is in love with this present world and he has deserted me. Even here, side by side, you've got people who served on the apostolic team. You've got, you've got people who were together with the apostle Paul. I mean, that's like the dream job, at least for me. I mean, if I had the time machine, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of pretty high on the list of thinking about going back. You know what I'm saying? I mean, being with him, I have to learn Greek a lot better than I know now, but, you know, there's details that can be worked out. The privilege of serving with an apostle. And yet that is no safety net for faithfulness. You've got at least two that overtly are said are finishing well. And then you've got Demas, who we know, right along with them, serving alongside, just like Judas, and he fails. He fails. Demas becomes a warning for us. Are we slowly finding ourselves falling in love with the world more than Christ? Are we slipping in our faithfulness to the calling he has put on our lives to minister for him? Demas stands as a warning to us all. No matter how well we start, are we remaining faithful to one another, to Christ, and to the ministry that he has called us to? At this point, time does not allow us to discuss Nympha, the widow who served God by opening her home to a church that would regularly meet there week in, week out, morning, night, giving them a place to gather and worship, faithfully committing herself and her resources for something eternal, perhaps even something that she would be arrested and killed for by the Romans. Time doesn't allow us to to fully describe Luke, the doctor who faithfully stayed with Paul, traveling with him, meeting his needs, all the while keeping tracks of facts and details, doing interviews of people who had gone, who were ahead of him in this journey of faith in Christ so that he could compose a history of the coming of of Christ and his work on the cross, his ascension to heaven, and the, 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 the exploding growth of the church that we call the Gospel of Luke and Acts, a full one fourth of the New Testament. And yet here we have these examples of faithfulness. All we can do is end in this way, looking at the Apostle Paul who served faithfully even in difficulty, like we must be faithful in difficulty, telling the Colossians, remember my chains. Remember my chains. Is he, is he gathering sympathy? No. He wants them to understand that though he was a prisoner of Caesar, he was suffering for Christ. He was willing to be a faithful servant to his Savior regardless of the difficulty of the circumstances that he was in. So oftentimes we run from pain. We run from difficulty. We flee from inconvenience. But the example that we have from Paul and from his ministry team is the exact opposite. If it means furthering the gospel, if it means expanding the saving reign of Christ, it is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. 
Thus, as Paul said to Archippus, so we must say to ourselves and to one another, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And by God's grace, we will be faithful to do that together. Father, we are thankful for this display that we have, even as we end this book of Colossians, we are thankful, God, that even here we have this amazing picture of men and women who served you because they loved you dearly. They had come to grasp the amazing grace and mercy, the loving kindness that you showed toward us sinners who did not deserve it through the sending of your Son, God, may we be so captivated by your grace that we ourselves would begin to look afresh at one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, that that would move us to minister together to one another, with one another, that your kingdom might be built up and that, God, we would do that faithfully to the end. That, God, we would never waver in our convictions, that we would never, never grow slack and the opportunities that stand before us. Instead, God, may we, may, be, may we run long and true, finding ourselves on that final day at the very gates of heaven, hearing your words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, only you can produce that within us, and so we ask that you would do that. By your word and your spirit, God, Cultivate us into those kinds of Christians, into that kind of church. This is our prayer. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.